culture today has an obsession with the rich, famous, and powerful. We want to know everything we can about them. And it's really pretty easy in the day of the internet to find out everything we want to know and maybe even more. What do we do? We follow them on Instagram or Twitter, which is now known as X. But I can hear you all right now saying, you know, a social media presence is hardly an accurate presentation of who a person really is. I mean, after all, they get to edit their content. They get to retouch their photos and choose just the things that they want to present to the public. They get to decide and present the narrative that they want people to see. No, if we really want to know who a person is, we must ask someone who's had a personal encounter with that person, or we need to have a personal encounter with that person ourselves. Now, when my daughter was right out of college, her first job was in public relations at the Federal Reserve in Washington, D.C. Now, I was an economics major in, co in college, and so, man, that just jazzed me. I couldn't believe that what I was hearing, my daughter, who was not an economics major, was going to be working very closely with arguably the most powerful woman in the world, Janet Yellen, chair of the Fed. Can you put the slide off? Here's a picture of them. If we can get it. There. There's Lauren. And doesn't she just look like the little Jewish grandmother? <laughs> well, I couldn't wait to hear about Lauren's first encounter with Chair Yellen. What was she like? This most powerful woman in the world. Well, sitting at a table with just Chair Yellen and one other person, the most powerful woman in the world began to ask my daughter about her swimming career at the University of Georgia. She wanted to know more about Lauren and what it was like to be a national champion. That was just astounding to me. Janet Yellen must be somewhat humble and caring and approachable to take those 10 minutes out of her already jam-packed schedule to get to know this young woman in an entry-level position. You know, you can tell a lot about a person by how they treat the little guy, can't you? Then there was the time that Lauren was volunteering her time to teach swim lessons to inner-city children. My friend Lisa Navarro-Fikes had run into her and asked her to do this for a special group of children in someone's backyard pool in Northern Virginia. Well, that backyard pool just happened to be owned by this man, Colin Powell. Would you believe it if I told you that while Lauren was out there in the pool teaching these kids, Colin Powell went into his house, put on his swim trunks, came out, and got in the water with them to help. Y'all, look at him. This man was a general in the U.S. Army. See all the things on his coat? National Security Advisor and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under the first President Bush, and finally, Secretary of State under George W. This guy, just like Chair Yellen, was also humble and caring and approachable. 
You see, my daughter's personal experiences with these, both of these powerful public figures gave me insight into who they really are. And John is using personal encounters throughout his gospel to convince his readers of the truth about who Jesus really is. In the first chapter, John lays out his thesis that Jesus is the long-awaited messianic king. Jesus is the son of God. He's setting the groundwork that he's going to flesh out in the rest of the book. Throughout the book, John introduces us to seven witnesses that will give testimony to who Jesus really is. Now, if you know anything about the number seven and its use in scripture, you know that it is a number signifying completeness and perfection. There's a reason that John hones in on seven witnesses of who Jesus is. This next slide will lay it out for us a little bit. You'll see who we've got as the witnesses. Okay. Um, John also records seven signs in the first 12 chapters of his gospel as proof. This is also known as the book of signs. On top of that, John emphasizes the completeness of the witness of Jesus himself by including these seven metaphorical I am statements in his gospel. Now, a metaphor, I'm sure you guys can remember back to high school, lit, English, all those good things. A metaphor is a literary device in which a word or phrase is applied to something or someone to which it is not literally applicable. It's a word picture, if you will, used to illustrate or give understanding. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're like, wait, in our questions last week and in the notes, I guess it was two weeks ago, we learned that there are nine I am statements in the book of John. But if you go back and you look at those nine statements, you'll see that two of them are absolute statements. They are literally true about Jesus. What I'm talking about here are the seven metaphorical word pictures that Jesus gave of himself. And you're also probably thinking, but last week or two weeks ago, I can't remember when it was, we learned that there are eight miracles or signs in John's gospel. And that is true. But here I'm talking about the seven signs and wonders that were part of Jesus' public ministry in the first half of John's gospel that are given there as proof to why Israel should have recognized him as king and Messiah. And we'll learn a whole lot more about that later. That final miracle that John records in the very last chapter of his gospel was a sign for Jesus' inner circle of disciples after he had risen from the dead. So this witness thing in John's gospel is part of a larger trial motif, and it's not what you really expect. It's not Jesus that's put on trial and condemned by the world, but rather the world that will be put on trial by Jesus and found guilty. John will demonstrate in his gospel that there is no guilt found in Jesus. It is the world that is guilty. It is the world that needs a savior, but the world rejects him as Messiah. Now last week, in a beautiful lecture that Paige gave us, John the Baptist was introduced. Today, we're going to see how his works and his words bear t- testimony to Jesus' true identity. 
And then two more witnesses are going to be introduced in our chapter today. We will look at the witnesses of Jesus' first disciples, and finally, the witness of Jesus himself. Open your Bibles to chapter 1, look down at verse 19, and follow along with me as I read these verses. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where Jesus was baptizing. Y'all, we're going to stop right there for a second and talk about John. John the Baptist was creating quite the stir by baptizing Jews for the remission of their sins. I mean, baptism is such a common word for us, and we, we kind of know what it is. But did you know that baptism was actually practiced in those times? But it was not a rite for Jews. It was a rite for proselytes, for those who were, were wanting to convert to the Jewish faith. It was for those dirty, sinful Gentiles, not the Jews. And it came about as a purification rite for Gentiles so that they could be received into the covenant community of Israel. On top of that, the Gentiles themselves would administer the cleansing with water. Because, you know, after all, no good Jew would come near to touching a dirty Gentile. But John the Baptist, in our passage, is calling Jews to repent of their sins and to be baptized. He was administering the same kind of cleansing with water that a Gentile convert underwent. You better believe that that was raising some eyebrows in Jerusalem. John was giving an outward and visible sign of Israel's inward need for cleansing and forgiveness by the one who was to come after him. He was giving testimony to Israel's need for a savior. Now there were all kinds of questions being asked about John. When the priests and Levites asked him who he was, John confessed, did not deny, but confessed that he was not the Christ. Did you love that cumbersome phrase of words there? It's really a rough translation of what is really a rough grouping of words in the Greek. And that double negative there is made is there to give emphasis to the fact that John was not the expected one. John was not the Messiah. And next they ask if he was Elijah, the Old Testament prophet. Now, why would they ask if he's Elijah? Well, before that 400 years where God was silent in the book of Malachi, Malachi had prophesied 
See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So the Jews had been, in a sense, waiting for the return of Elijah. According to Malachi 4.6, the reason for Elijah's return would to be to turn the hearts of fathers and their children toward each other. So in other words, the goal would be reconciliation and unity. John the Baptist answered that he was not Elijah. Wait a minute. Did anybody have trouble with that? Well, technically, he's not the literal Elijah. But if you look at Matthew chapter 11, verses 13 and 14, Jesus reveals that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. This is what it says. All the prophets in the law prophesied until John... And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. As the metaphorical Elijah, John called people to repentance and to a life of obedience in God. Finally, the the posse, if you will, asked if John the Baptist was the prophet. Not a prophet, but the prophet. By this they meant the prophet who had been prophesied who would, about who would be like Moses. Now, those of you that were with us last year for our study of the Pentateuch may remember, and I'm pretty sure I gave this lecture from Deuteronomy 18, 18, where God told Moses, I will raise up a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command them. The Jews have been waiting for the prophet like Moses the one who would mediate for the people. But John the Baptist was very clear in replying, no, he was not the prophet. So when they continued to press him and ask him for an answer to the question of who he was so that they could go back to Jerusalem and give an answer, John the Baptist replied by quoting another Old Testament book, the book of Isaiah. We read part of the chapter this morning. Isaiah had declared that before the Messiah would come, God would send a messenger to proclaim for the people to build a road, level the ground, knock down the mountains, and raise up the valleys, and build the highway of the king, because the king is coming in all his glory. John was saying that he was there to tell them to get ready for the coming of the king. He was preparing the people of his generation for the coming of Jesus Christ, the one who had come to seek and save the lost and to reconcile all things to himself. John gave some insight into his identity, but there's still this one problem. Why is he baptizing? He's not the Christ. He's not Elijah. He's not the prophet, and he's certainly not a priest or a Levite. So in their minds, they're thinking, he has no authority to be baptizing. He gives us this curious answer. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now that little saying about the sandal strap is a Jewish idiom. In those days... The disciple of a Jewish rabbi would take on the role of a rabbi's servant 
as they followed him around from place to place, learning from him. We see this happen in Jesus' disciples at the Last Supper. If you recall, they're the ones that made the provisions for the meal that they were going to eat. But the main difference between a rabbinical disciple and a bond slave was that the disciple was never expected to take care of a rabbi's shoes. That was a dirty task that was given only to the lowest of all slaves. So what John is saying here is that in comparison to the one who is to come after him, he is lower than low. He's not even fit to be the slave that would untie the sandal strap of Jesus. John is taking the attention off of himself and his identity, and he's seeking to place all of their attention on Jesus. And that is just what John, the author of our gospel, wants us to do as well. Focus on Jesus and who Jesus really is. Just like the people of that day, we must realize that we have sinned against God and against each other. We have broken his holy law, the law that was given to show us how far we missed the mark. We, like John, are not even worthy to be the one who unties the sandal strap of Jesus. We've gone our own way, and we've done what was right in our own eyes, and we desperately need a Savior. Have you been honest with yourself about your son? Do you think that you are basically good like I once did? You know, it's really easy to rationalize and to deceive ourselves. I mean, you know, we're not Hitler after all. But are we also willing to admit neither are we Mother Teresa? And boy, ladies, spoiler alert, she's not perfect either. In order for us to understand why Jesus came and who he is, we need to first understand that we are all sinners, even those of us who consider ourselves to be his disciples. This was the testimony that John gave through his work of baptism. Consider, um, Rebecca, if you'll pull up the last slide. I want you to consider these words of author Jerry Bridges. Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. I'm going to repeat that because it's so good. And it takes a while to wrap your brain around what it's saying. Your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of, all, of God's grace. We're all in need of the saving work of Jesus. Now let's look at John the Baptist's words. Rebecca, you can turn it off. And... Thank you. Reading verses 29 through 34. Take a look down at your Bibles while I read. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, 
But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist gives us two more identities of Jesus in this one passage. First, John calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Did you know that there are only two books in the Bible that refer to Jesus as the Lamb of God? Right here in John's Gospel, and then again in John's Revelation. Revelation, um, oh, I, so uh, in Revelation 5, John is told to await the Lion of Judah in the throne of God. And instead, he turns to find the Lamb who looks to have been slain. The angels are there singing. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Now, if you spent last year with us studying the Pentateuch, you might be puzzled by the use of the term Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as opposed to Bull of God or Goat of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because do you remember what were used as sin offerings in the Old Testament? It was bulls and goats. It wasn't lambs. And, and some scholars, like, they have a problem with that. But if we go back and we look through Scripture, we see the history of the use of a lamb as a substitutionary sacrifice. Do you remember the story of Abraham offering his promised son Isaac on the altar? his one and only son by his wife Sarah that he had waited years and years for? Remember what God provided as a substitute for Isaac as Abraham held that knife high in the air? Remember what it was? It was a male lamb. It was a ram caught in a thicket. And then again, if you remember back to the first Passover, we see the provision of God for his people by the death of a lamb. Do you remember? Before that final plague against Egypt, God instructed his people to kill one lamb per household and to take the blood of the lamb and sprinkle it on the doorposts of all the houses of Israel so that the angel of death would pass over their houses on its way to killing all the firstborn of Egypt. Do you see the connection? the substitution of a lamb for the firstborn of every family in Israel. God had revealed to his servant, John the Baptist, that Jesus was the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who was sent as a substitutionary atonement for the sins of the world. Now, John didn't fully understand what he was giving testimony to. He just knew that as God had revealed to him, he had seen the heavens open up and a dove descend on Jesus at his baptism and remain on him like a dove. Do you understand that Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slain in your place and in my place? God in his perfect plan has provided a way for us to be reconciled to him and to each other. Jesus is the one to whom all the Old Testament sacrifices pointed. Jesus became our true, unblemished Passover lamb 
by, giving, by living a sinless life, by dying the death on the cross that we deserve, and by taking on the full wrath of God in our place. Jesus came to take on your son and mine and to give us, this is the glory, this is the amazing part, to give us his righteous record in return. Is Jesus your atoning lamb? Next, let's look at the witness of Jesus' first disciples. Follow along as I pick up in verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to him, them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the Son of God. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found the one of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. We're going to stop right there. Did you notice that these first two disciples of Jesus had previously been John's disciples? Everything that John the Baptist had been doing and saying was to point his followers to Jesus. John introduces these two men to Jesus, and then he quietly sort of fades into the background. His job with them was done. Andrew was so excited about meeting Jesus that he immediately went to find his brother. He declared, we found the Messiah. Y'all, this was the first witness of Jesus' inner circle. It was a bold statement. Humanity had been waiting since the Garden of Eden for the Messiah who would come and crush the head of the serpent. Thousands of years. So if Jesus is your Savior, are you bold enough to tell your brothers and sisters that you found the Messiah? Have you brought them? Have you asked them to come and see? Have you brought them to meet Jesus as Andrew did? I don't know about you, but from my personal experience, it's often those people closest to us, our family members who don't know the Lord, that are hardest, the hardest ones to give testimony about Jesus to. The next day, Jesus called Philip and Galilee to follow him. Philip then goes and tells Nathanael that Jesus of Nazareth is the one to whom all of the law and prophets point. 
Nathaniel mockingly quips back, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You see, Nazareth was this tiny little town about 55 miles north of Jerusalem, like a little agricultural place with very few people that lived there. And during the time of Jesus, Israelites looked down their noses at anyone from Nazareth. Nathaniel asked the question because the Christ was thought to be the one who was going to come and deliver Israel from the Roman oppression. The Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, was to be held in the highest esteem. So why would he come from a place like Nazareth? Well, Nathaniel agrees to come and see anyway. And Philip's witness that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Jewish scripture was a bold testimony. But it's not really what pushed Nathaniel over the edge of believing and hearing and seeing Jesus' supernatural knowledge of who he was. That's what pushed him over the edge. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I was on the Penn walkway at UT recruiting for Thrive. I was looking for students to come be interns at Thrive. And I spied this girl walking across campus. She was clearly going through Rush because she had a little white dress. And I was like, ooh, I recognize that girl. I recognize her from her mother's Facebook posts. She's a girl from Memphis, where I came from over 12 years ago. And I haven't lived in Memphis in 12 years, nor have I really kept up with this woman. But I'd seen her Facebook post, and I was like, ha, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get me an intern right here. <laughs> and so I called out, Eleanor Bridgeforth. And y'all, she wheeled around, and her eyes got big as saucers, and she said, how do you know me? Well, obviously, I don't have supernatural power. I knew who she was by the magic of Facebook. But Jesus, in our passage today, does have supernatural power. He doesn't just know who Nathaniel is, but he sees into his very soul. In this passage, Jesus' words indicate that Nathaniel isn't just an Israelite by birth. He is a true Israelite. But what does that mean? Well, I want you to flip in your Bibles to Psalm 32. And while you're turning there, I want to say that if you don't believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to teach you and give you understanding of the scriptures, I am living proof. On Sunday, while I was having my quiet time before I came to church, I opened up in my Cultivate book, and yes, I am weeks behind because I apparently didn't uh, make a copy of that new schedule. Anyway, I opened up to Psalm 32, and there it was. Y'all, the bell started going off in my head. Ding, 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 ding. All right, here's what it says. Okay, and Nathaniel knew just what Jesus meant because he had grown up singing this psalm in worship. <coughs> Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Do you see it? Do you see it? Now skip down to verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not 
cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my son. Jesus supernaturally knew that Nathaniel was repentant. He was not hiding his sin or deceiving himself about being a sinner, as many of the Israelites, including the Pharisees, were doing in that day. He had a kind of faith and adherence to God's will that his forefather Jacob did, a.k.a. Israel. So Jesus called him an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. He was invoking Psalm 32. And Nathanael, marveling that Jesus knew him so fully, even to know the condition of his soul, declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. John is calling us through his gospel to recognize Jesus as the Son of God and as true King. Do you believe that Jesus is both the Son of God and King over all? If Jesus, the Lamb of God, and the Son of God is also King over all creation, that changes everything. Our response should be, as his subjects, to yield ourselves to him, to submit to him and to his will for our lives, to trust that he will go before us and he will hem us in from behind and protect us. And in response, we are to serve him and worship him as his subjects. Revelation 7 says this, speaking of those whose robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of his throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Are you serving King Jesus and subjecting your life to his rules? Are you trusting at him to be sovereign over your very life and giving himself, giving to him yourself with open hands? You'd probably get my reference if you were here to hear James's sermon last Sunday. Finally, John gives us one final witness in this chapter, and it's the witness of Jesus himself. Look down at verses 50 and 51 as I read them. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, if you studied Genesis with us two years ago, or if you've ever studied Genesis, that statement of Jesus was probably eerily familiar because Jesus is hearkening back to Genesis 28 when Jacob had first left Beersheba fleeing from his brother Esau, who was trying to take his life because Jacob had stolen the birthright. And it's in this same passage that God reveals himself to Jacob and reaffirms the covenant that he had first made with his forefather Abraham, promising Jacob 
who will become known as Israel, that his offspring will be many, and that the promised land will one day belong to his descendants. In this vision, Jacob sees something similar to a ladder or a stairway coming down from heaven with angels ascending and descending on the ladder. Now the ladder signifies connection between God and man. And in this instance, it is God who had provided the means necessary to link himself to man as opposed to the moon in Genesis 11. Do you remember the Tower of Babel, where man, completely devoid of God, tried to build a tower to reach heaven? Jesus is declaring that he is the ladder. He is the means by which man reaches God. And furthermore, by referring to himself as the son of man, he is equating himself with the term that was used for Messiah in the book of Daniel. Daniel 7, verses 13 and following says this, There before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Well, ladies, John has just laid it all out for us right there in chapter 1. We have the witness of John the Baptist. We have the witness of the first disciples. And we have the witness of Jesus himself. And John is not finished lining up his witnesses. We will see several more throughout the book of John. The big picture question for you and for me today is what are we going to do with those testimonies? Jesus, the Son of God, is the Lamb of God who takes away from the sin of the world. Jesus is Messiah, the one to whom all the law and the prophets point. Jesus is the true King of Israel. And Jesus is the Son of Man, the God-Man, who will become the ladder for man to ascend to God. A personal encounter with Jesus changes everything. Tezar Putra was a tennis star in his homeland of Indonesia. When the University of Memphis appointed him a spot on their men's tennis team, Tezar jumped at the chance to come to America. But what Tezar didn't realize is that this was really a divine appointment. You see, while Tazar was on the campus of the U of M, through the Ministry of Campus Outreach, is Cindy Lee out here today? I'm going to shout out to Campus Outreach because we have some folks in our staff that are affiliated. But while Tazar was on the campus of U of M, through the Ministry of Campus Outreach, he had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Now, I met Tazar after he plugged into my church, Second Presbyterian. It was around the year 2008. Tazar was this short, just adorable little guy with the most bright, white, infectious smile. You could just see the joy radiating on his face. So I was talking to him after church one day, and I asked Tazar his plans after graduation, and he responded that he was going to marry the girl that he had met, the love of his life, and that one day they hoped to move back to his homeland so that he could tell his brothers and sisters 
the good news of Jesus that he had learned in America. Now, I com completely lost touch with Hazar. I moved away from Memphis in 2012. He moved away from Memphis, eventually went on to RTS and Orlando, I think, and, and I hadn't really even thought about Tazar in years until our most recent, recent missions conference here at Cedar Springs. One of the missions that we support had a video of a church in Jakarta, Indonesia, and there was Tazar up on the big screen preaching to his brethren. Y'all, I broke down into tears. I saw the exponential effect that Tazar's conversion had had on all these people in Indonesia, a city of like 20 million. It's enormous. Do you remember that census lecture that I gave last year if you were part of Grace and Truth last year? I told two people, and they told two people, and they told two people. You remember, don't you, Nancy? Tazar, a true disciple, had multiplied exponentially. Remember, Lord, uh, ladies, if Jesus is who the Gospel of John lays out for us, then everything changes, even the trajectory of our very lives. You might not be called to go halfway around the globe. Young moms, you might just be called to be making disciples in your household. Or all of us in our neighborhoods with the neighborhood children or ladies in our neighborhoods that may be, you know, casual Christians. We can make disciples of all the people around us and we're called to that. Who knows the exponential effect that that will have on the kingdom of God? We are just called to be faithful in making disciples. Do you believe? In the Gospel of John, he's going to take us on our own journey and give us our own personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, King of the cosmos. And if you don't believe today, I pray that by the end of the journey, you will. Let's pray. Father God, our gracious King, Lord, we give you the grace. We pray that you would lead us into all truth as we go now into our small groups and that you would facilitate our discussions to be centered on, on Jesus' true identity, that we may know him and that you would press upon our hearts the truths that you would have us take with us. Lord, help us to be sensitive to your leading and give us understanding, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.